All right. Well, let's uh, let's. Yep. All right. Let's get going. Want to review uh, just briefly what we're doing, and then talk us through the why uh, and the what of tonight. So, uh, what is apologetics? I don't think I left that. Did I leave that defined for you? I don't think I did. So, okay. Yeah. What's apologetics? How have we? Loosely defined slash described apologetics. Okay. Use of logic and argument to spread the word. Okay. Yep. Yep. Christian apologetics. Defense of the faith or a defense. Apologia being a defense, and in de- the Christian apologetics, a defense of the Christian faith. Right? Um, the first week, uh, Jacob gave us a goal of apologetics. Um, I'm going to suggest that the goal should not just be that we have big heads. Um, so what is the goal of Christian apologetics? been two weeks, so it's a little hard. Anybody want to take a stab at it? You may not remember what he said, but you're welcome to just take a stab at what you think the goal of apologetics should be. Down to glorify God. Glorify God. There we go. Um, the, the phrase that I would use after consulting with Jacob today was the worshipful task of glorifying God by giving answers to why we believe um, and how we act. Um, remembering that apologetics... Uh, does require speaking, um, but it also should be in conjunction with our actions. Our actions should be a display of our beliefs, um, that it is not simply absent our beliefs. Classic Christian apologetics does not often include actions, but it, it should, um, because our actions make it easier for someone to believe or harder for someone to believe the words that are coming from our mouth. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 is probably the most classic verse uh, defining the task of Christian apologetics, describing it for us. But it gives us a posture that we should have when we are engaging in the task of apologetics. Uh, Somebody that's navigating over there, if I can get you to read that verse, and then I want us to talk about that posture for a minute. Go for it. But in your hearts regard Christ, the Lord of the Holy, of the Holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you who were reason for the hope that is in you. Is that the last part you have in that verse? What do you have at the beginning of the next then? Uh, the next one says, Yet do okay. this with gentleness and repent. Okay. Good. Your, your translation broke it at a different spot. Um, so, but often, like I memorized this verse a long time ago without that portion. Maybe because it's a different verse and a, and a different translation. But the always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you is the, the most popular rephrasing of this verse. But the end of the verse gives us a posture that we should take. That posture is of gentleness and respect. Why is the task important? Why is that posture important? Or why do you think that posture could be important? Okay. Um, I agree. But I have seen the opposite done. Um, when I was at North Carolina State, we had a guy, we called him the Brickyard Preacher. Um, he stood out, the whole North Carolina State campus at that point was basically sidewalks made of brick, and the big brickyard was the big courtyard, pavilion area, uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of 10,000s of bricks, you're looking out at a couple hundred square yards, and he's out there as classes are getting out of the library and the dining hall and all that, and he's just yelling at people. 
um, fire and brimstone yelling angrily at people. Um, and if anybody ever said anything to them, they did not get a response of gentleness and respect. Um, and I have no doubt that he probably intended to do great good, uh, but I'm not sure how much good he did through his demeanor and his posture. Um, that's an extreme example, but often when we, if we're not careful, or at least if I'm not careful, when I look through material and apologetics, I come away thinking, man, this is really, really good. This really makes sense. I can use this. I can win the argument. I can do this. And if I'm not careful, my goal stops becoming God's goal to glorify him by pointing others to him, by giving an answer in a way that makes sense to them. And I can be guilty of not doing so with gentleness and respect if I'm not careful. I think that the posture that we engage with people in, particularly in apologetics, is vital. Um, in so many things in our Christian life, our posture is important. It's not just important to say the right thing, but to say it in a way that people are willing to listen um, as much as possible. Um, you can't force them to listen. And we talked last week about how the work of conversion is a work that requires the Holy Spirit's presence and work in a person's life. It's not us convincing someone to become a believer. It is the Holy Spirit converting them to the things of the faith, but our posture should be one of gentleness and respect. And even as we, one of the ways that I want to look at a method tonight that does use, I think, a little bit of gentleness and respect for people. Um, have you have you seen apologetics done poorly, with or not with poorly, but great answers, but without gentleness and respect? Um, you know, I'm probably not the only one that's seen that at some point. And that, that's not beautiful. It's not delightful. And it did not make the job of other Christians on campus life very easy. Like if you were set, you know, if you wanted to engage with other students when I was a part of the evangelism team of Campus Crusade, that was not the spot. You didn't go to the courtyard or the brickyard and sit at a table and walk through the four spiritual laws with somebody while he was yelling at Christian stuff. Um, to them. It did not make the life of other believers necessarily easy. So, When you look at a restaurant's reviews, it's usually the people who are upset that leave the review. It's kind of like the same mindset. Like They're going to remember the person who is an affront to them mm -hmm. more than they're going to remember the kindness of others. Yeah. I was just going to say as, as well uh, that as we do projects, we're trying to show people that truthfulness of who God is and how he changes lives so you have to do it in, in acting out your changed life as a piece of evidence uh, if we're going to be using evidence for apologetics your life and your action is part of that right and the character of God does involve wrath and justice um, but according to Romans, it is the patience and kindness of God that brings us to repentance, uh, intended to bring us to repentance, so not the harshness of God. All right. <coughs> I want to use, I want to try to avoid using the word proof. Um, I will use the phrase uh, arguments at times. The handout is right there if you want to grab one. Um, I want to try to avoid using proof and instead talk about arguments or clues. What is the difference in a proof and a clue? What do you think I'm intending to differentiate between proof and clue? Proof is sometimes your idea of proof isn't their idea of proof. Okay. May not be convincing. I would think a proof conclusively demonstrates something, whereas a clue indicates something maybe is more likely. Mm -hmm. It's like direct versus indirect. Like direct have proof is like direct evidence of. Right. And, uh, Tom, what is the, the legal term for conviction um, requires a, a is it belief beyond reasonable doubt? Is that what it is? Yes. Okay. Um, conviction requires, legally requires proof or, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. Um, 
when I think of proof, I think of something, I think of mathematical proofs from geometry. Um, I think of 100%, absolutely, there is no rebuttal to this. This is ironclad, absolute guaranteed to win the argument, and not only win the argument, but it is a guarantee, okay? Though God is truthful, and therefore what God says goes, and God can be relied upon, our understanding of all in which he, the ways in which he has made us and of what we believe, I believe should be filled with clues and not proofs. So though I'm going to argue in a few weeks out that the resurrection is the most verifiable event, I think, in the entirety of the Bible, I still wouldn't talk about it being a proof. I don't think there's proof of the resurrection. I think there are so many clues that it is unreasonable to not believe in the abundance of the clues, but I want to differentiate that between proof and clue. And I think that it's helpful when we're engaging with non-believers that do not come from a massive Christian background to use language about clues, hints, suggestions, even arguments I think is fine. But I would try to avoid saying this proves God raised him, Christ from the dead. I would try to say this suggests, this seems to argue that Christ was risen from the dead. All of the arguments, all of the evidence suggests this case, but it's hard for those using the language of proof in a 100% guarantee to get to that. Um, and in some cases, the best that we can do, particularly tonight with the argument from morality, is it suggests, and I think the best explanation of morality and the standards of morality is the biblical picture of God. Are there other ways that other people would come about morality? Yes. In fact, the entire field of ethics is filled with people that have other foundations than the biblical God. You go to UVA, you go to Virginia Tech, you go to George Washington, you go to a college and you can study ethics with people that found their morality on something other than biblical theism. Um, but I think that the argument suggests for morality suggests that there is a God. Um, C.S. Lewis, who I'm going to argue from or use pretty extensively, it, towards the end of his chapter that he's making this case from natural law and morality for, for the biblical God says at first, he says, I think he says, I'm not within a hundred miles of the biblical God yet. Um, when he's made almost all of his argument for morality because he's just saying this points towards some version of theism. Theism being one God. It doesn't point towards only the cross and what the rest of the Bible defines as the Christian version of God. So, Proofs versus clues. Um, and I think it's important that we use language the best we can that suggests things, that says things gentle. Um, that, that is a, a, a lesson that my PhD major professor sat me down with and he said, listen, use language that suggests things, doesn't prove things. That argues things, that doesn't convince things. That let your language be cautious rather than overstated. Though overstatement wins the day with the press and with Twitter, it doesn't win the argument most of the time with people. It just becomes a soundbite. Um, so let's be gentle in our language. Now, there's a place for talking to others and answer not a fool according to his folly lest you become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly lest he think himself wise. All right, Proverbs, I believe it's 26, 4, and 5. Okay? You got to know what type of fool you're dealing with in life. Is this a fool that you need to ignore or a person that's a non-believer that you respond to with gentleness or is it one that you get dragged into an argument? And we, we can talk more about that in a future week. But, all right, I want to ask this question to you. I've set up the situation here. I'm going to get some ideas from you guys. 
there's more than one good answer here. There's an answer that we're going to use, but there's more than one good answer here. If you were talking with somebody that denied that the Bible is true and that was upset about Christians' views on morality, your subject of popular choice that you can use, um, Christian, classic Christian views on sexuality, views on uh, rights and uh, not engaging in euthanasia or um, abortion, Christian views on uh, theft, Christian views on any number of things. doesn't matter the object here. They were just upset that Christians said there's morality, there is good, there is bad. And they did not believe the Bible is true. How would you begin to engage them? All right, prayerfully, got that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, got it, check. Okay, to point them to Jesus, got it. Okay, Sunday school answers out of the way. What would you, how would you try to engage with them? I guess it's somebody I'm close with. I mean, really, that would kind of change the way you'd go after them. So if it was like a family member that I loved and cared about and wanted, I wanted to make sure it was worth I say it, like it's worth the amount of pain that would probably come from doing an engagement with someone like that. Um, probably slowly over time, the yeah. actions. Okay. Um, approach to some, try to figure out where they're upset towards the Bible comes from. I guess it's based on some historical, maybe their father was a abusive monster that yeah. was said he was a Christian. Okay, so try to figure out where that upsetness comes from and then just try to demonstrate through actions. Okay. So actions and relationship over time. Nancy? My whole sister's kids and my oldest daughter are, are saying to me, I just don't believe it. Mm -hmm. so I, don't, I think she's read a little of it. Mm -hmm. The others have not. They have broken the door. And I, don't, I have not known how to counteract that. Because yeah. as far as I'm concerned, so much is in the Old Testament that you know it's happened. So... To me, that means it's the whole thing's right. Anybody else want to take a stab at it? One, one thought, perhaps, is that uh, several, like Christianity predates the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Christianity is not because of the Bible. The Bible is because of Christianity. Okay. It's like you were, you're not born because you have a birth certificate. Mm -hmm. You have a birth certificate because you were born. Okay. There's an, a historical event that gave rise to a group of people believing something, and they wrote it down. Okay. Yep, to, to talk about it as a movement rather than an institution at first and foremost. You have to explain kind of what, okay. where, did, where did the church mm -hmm. come from? In some ways, I mean, then you say, I mean, it gets in the point, you have to, how do you know what the church is? It's right. through the Bible. Yeah. But, it, but if someone rejects the Bible, there's got to, you have to have the foundation for where the Bible came right. from. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So the way I would engage someone like this, like they're upset about uh, Christians, about morality, uh, and then I would just simply ask them, where do they get their source of morality? Like, how do they determine what is right yeah. and wrong for themselves? Yep. And that's where we're going to go with this. I, I think there's a couple of things. One, I, I would use, I try to use questions initially, like, well, why? Can you tell me about what to get to what you were thinking about? Well, the handout's here in the middle. Um, why? What is it about the Bible that you don't agree with? If you can get to that, what is it about the Bible? Well, have you read any portion? What portions of it have you read? Um, you know, there, there's some why, uh, and when we start moving more into evangelism stuff, I love Randy Newman's qu book, Questioning Evangelism and Using Questions to Engage. Well, you know, what portions of the Bible, well, you know, do you believe that God actually could do the supernatural? If you're disagreeing with the, the, the supernatural in the Bible, do you believe if there is a God that he could do the supernatural? Okay, well, now we got a different topic. But I would hit on the why um, and I'd want to know the why. I do think building the relationship over time is valuable. But 
if they wanted to key in on morality, I would let them go in with morality. And particularly being that's our topic of the night, that was kind of the clue for you on that one. Um, so I have heard a pastor say this before, and I think I actually am there right now. So I had a, have had a pastor probably 15 years ago tell me, when a college student comes home from college, or a person that grew up in a Christian background pretty quickly moves to the point of denying the biblical God, either atheistic, agnostic, or just shifts away. I don't think any of that stuff's true anymore. His first question to them is, who are you sleeping with? Because often a person's intellectual understanding of God is following their morality slipping, and they don't want there to be a God who they report to, so therefore they deny God in their mind. I've seen that often to be true, um, that at the bottom of this intellectually loaded, I just don't know if the Bible's true anymore, there's a bunch of garbage in there, I just don't know that I can trust all that, often is a desire for it not to be true. Um, but short of going there, and that probably would not be the best first question to go with, okay? Probably wouldn't be the best first question to go with if they're already upset about the morality side of things. Is, well, what do, you, what do you think is right and wrong? If that's wrong for Christians to say those types of things, is there that you obviously have a standard, you believe there is something wrong in the world, and you have some other things that you would think are not wrong, since you're holding a Christian to the standard of calling that wrong, you have a standard of what is not wrong. So what is your standard of right and wrong? Or can you give me an example of something that you think is somebody else that's wrong in the world? Give me something else that's wrong in the world and try to identify with them on that. Um, I want to bridge in for a minute and answer the question why you might want to be cautious only using logic though it would be possible to walk them through the evidence that suggests that the Bible has been reliably transmitted, accurately translated, preserved across history as a valid way of recording what God has done historically in the Old Testament, historically in the resurrection, and what he will do again based upon his past record. We can shoot out proofs. We can talk about how it's more uh, reliable than anything that Shakespeare had, that we have more evidence than anything else of ancient literature. We can go through all that. But if we go through all of that and attack the logic and the problem actually was a problem of the heart as you identified, Rich, or a problem of the background and it's an emotional situation, it, you're coming at the wrong thing and you're unloading every bullet you've got. It's not the gentleness and respect. It might have been well intended, but it's not helpful always. Um, earlier today, uh, Jacob, Sam, and I were discussing a different issue, but we were talking about how, how, much, how difficult it is to reason with someone else's emotional reasoning, right? And, and how we, are, we tend to think of ourselves. He actually made the comment that he's, he's a logic-based thinker, and I'm like, yeah, I am too almost all the time, but my wife would tell you there's a few times that I've just erred and been emotional rather than logical, and it's resulted in a, uh, an ability for her to correct me, um, <laughs> that I resisted vigorously for about 30 minutes. <laughs> so, um, where I am thinking emotionally, not recognizing though that I'm thinking emotionally. The problem with emotional reasoning is most people don't realize they're reasoning with their emotions. Um, they are thinking they are being logical, but in reality, it's emotions behind. So we need to get inside someone's story and their life to do things as much as possible with gentleness and respect. If you have time to have conversation, relationship, etc., get inside somebody's story. Joshua Shatrall, in his book, uh, Apologetics at the Cross, another book that, I, that I've listened to from him, uh, Jacob quoted Shatrall and Alan last week in their, their book, but he uses what's called the inside out. He's labeled it himself. It'd be kind of cool to get to label your own methodology, I think, um, but he's come up with his own methodology that's kind of a blend of some other stuff. He labeled it the inside out, 
And what he means by that is we need to step in and do our best to step inside someone's views and ask, what can we affirm? What about their position can we affirm? And what do we have to challenge? Um, Because contrary to some of the media narratives, listening doesn't always mean agreeing. It is possible to listen and disagree. Um, We need to be willing to step in someone's worldview, life, understand, try to see things from their perspective enough to see what we can affirm and what we need to challenge, what we need to deny, what we need to push on. Almost everyone that you talk to is going to have something about morality or life and their picture of, of the world that you can affirm, okay? Um, I'll, I'll give an example here for a minute. What can we affirm, and what do we need to challenge? So somebody that, you know, we're going to use extreme examples here um, throughout the night as we talk about morality and justice. But if uh, we were to run into somebody that was... Uh, let me, what should we use? Let's use the example of uh, someone that is big on women's rights, women uh, being protected from abuse, um, and that was just championing women. Um, maybe at the exclusion of men in some cases, we don't, we don't have to worry about that because here's where we could go. Yes, I can agree with you that women have incredible value. In fact, the Bible displays the value of women by having some of Jesus' first followers be women and the first resurrection witnesses were women. There, there's incredible value in the Bible. So there is, I mean, that, that's a classic, a classic example. One is on that. We believe that women should be protected from abusive men. But tell me, why do you believe that? Um, why do you believe women should be protected from abusive men? In a non-believing standpoint, okay, so let's, let's try to step inside their world for a minute. That person's probably not in this room. I don't think that's going to be any of you that don't have a believing background, but maybe you've got a sibling, maybe you've got a family member, maybe you've got somebody else. If you were to push them and say, yes, I agree with you. We need to make sure that women are protected from abusive men, that women in the job in the workforce earn the same things as equal men with equal situations. We need to be treating women with respect. But why, Jill, we'll call her for a minute. Why, Jill, do you believe that? How do you think Jill could respond without a biblical worldview. Katie? Culture has systematically devalued women and therefore to help give them value and equalize things, they need protections. All right, so culture has devalued, therefore they need protections. In some cases they need greater than protections. They may need some help to be on equal footing or even steps beyond that to make up for what was done in the past that could cause eva- e, uh, putting women on a platform. But that's their background, that's a, and that is a correct response. But what makes that what was done in the past wrong? Yeah, I don't know how you justify fairness without a, like, without a biblical foundation. Why is it being fair or not fair? Normally, that's what like, you hear people say. It's about why should the world be fair? Like, if you tell me fairness, I'm going to say, why should the world be fair? I, not, not trying to be harsh and belittle. I firmly believe, and we would have to continually state and push, absolutely, I agree with you that women should be treasured, protected, valued, respected, safe, all of those things. Why? Well, that's a biblical statement. We're trying to go without using the Bible for a minute. 
that you're correct. We have a foundation for that. We do, but if the bad guys start invading in your house and most married women are going to send their husband to take care of the bad guys. Most, not all. Okay. Um, there's some women that are a better shot than men that can protect better than men. Okay. But most of the time we're going to send the guys in to, to handle that situation. And for most operating without a biblical worldview, they're going to be operating from the assumption that society and people are a product of natural selection over time, which favors society of the, the, the strength of the fittest and the survival of the fittest. Therefore, it's in the best interest of society that men thrive and women, well, if they can. Eventually in civilization and people, if there were no women, to some degree, I mean, if we eliminate women, yes, we're going to have a problem there, okay? All right, but what about, what were you saying, Horn? Yeah, we're already going that way, but, all right? But fairness, right? Um, why, to, to go with another one, why is it wrong to own other people. That, I mean, most of our culture at this point would say it's wrong to own people. We agree. Unfortunately, Christians have not always agreed. But we absolutely at this point agree, and Christians got that wrong. But why is it wrong to own people? We would say because they're created in the image of God. But without a biblical worldview, why is it wrong to own people? Because if you, if you take this like an evolutionary standpoint, then people are nothing more than animals, and I own a dog, right? So if, you're, if you don't have a biblical foundation, I don't know how you come to that conclusion. Same thing with like murder. Why is it wrong to murder? Yeah. Right? If I'm stronger than you, and I conquer you, why do I not get to own you? What's wrong with that? We've got, well, we have rules now that say we shouldn't do that, okay? Well, we, we've learned and become educated. It's illegal, all right? Why should we not make children labor? Well, it's not good for their development. Well, it's good for society. Well, or is it long, short-term, long-term? Um, so the, the root of all these questions, eventually someone that is going to push and say, well, everybody knows it's wrong to own people. No, there's still people owned all over the world and people don't actually, some people think they're doing wrong and still do it, others don't. Is it wrong to, uh, to kill people because of their ethnicity and heritage? We would say so. Christians would say so. But the Germans didn't as a government. Okay. Stalin didn't seem to have any issues with it, with mass murder and execution. So we would say that's wrong. We would say there's laws against that. Okay. So is it a law? Because it's a law, is that what makes it wrong? they're stronger and they contribute more to society this is the problem this is where we get if value to society is what determines value then there is no reason to not to protect the weak to take care of the handicapped and to not just go ahead and kill off all your senior senior adults because, at least with a kid, they're going to make big contributions to society. But senior adults, man, Miss, Miss Nancy, I'm sorry. 
thanks for everything you did, but you're a drain on us now. You're not giving us the best years anymore, and you're not going to get any better. You, right, and now this is all non-biblical argumentation that has been used in multiple places in the world multiple times. Our society says it's illegal to do so, that you should not kill somebody because they are a drain upon society or because they don't contribute as much as they used to. So we would say it's illegal. Well, what's the foundation? How are, why are laws made? How, how do laws in our country get made? Two general ways. Okay, out of need, but yes. What's the process for making a law? Legislatively. Legislatively, either our elected officials or, or yeah, by ballot. You know, either somebody's going to sign something in the law as executive order or we're going to get legislation or the Supreme Court's going to right, make a ruling. But in general, it's based upon supposed to be constitutionality and beyond that realistically the the court of public opinion majority makes that decision and who you elect which has its consequences over time um so the majority right now in our country would say they believe that they should not kill off the minority that they have a constitutional right or that there should be a right that you should not kill off others. But why? Right? Eventually, at the why of all of that, there is no good answer. Breed the fittest and the best. Don't do anything else. Is the easiest without a biblical picture of morality grounding someone, it's easy to get there. Shatral steps in and he says, let's affirm some things, let's challenge some things. Where do these views lead? What's inconsistent? What's inconsistent with their views? And then step back out of their views and where is their competing narratives from the Christian story and how does the Christian story better address those things. In this case, just short-circuiting this process, all right, uh, apart from a theistic view or something that someone would say grounds the value of people not based upon their contribution or their possible future contribution, there's a much better solution provided by the Christian story that says that all people are created with dignity and equal worth in the image of God, whether handicapped intellectually or whether the fastest and the fittest, that there is equal dignity and equal worth. That's a way in which we could enter into someone's story that wants to champion the rights of any group of marginalized and difficult faith life or people that face difficult life circumstances, jumping in with them, affirming, challenging the foundation of that view and showing how Christianity gives more value and has a solid foundation. Um, okay. All right, I wanna, I gotta speed up. So C.S. Lewis and his argument or clues for morality from mere Christianity he, he says this in chapter one, people generally agree on most moral laws. Not everyone in all situations. There, there's some cultures where uh, duplicity is rewarded as opposed to honesty, um, where violence is championed, uh, et cetera. But most people in most cultures agree on most moral laws, but they don't, just don't always obey them. Like people agree on even in our culture, agree on most of our laws, they just may not obey them nearly as much, okay? And then he goes on to say that morals are more like multiplication tables than social conventions, that, that they, are, they are discovered, not determined by society. Um, that whether or not you ever learned your multiplication tables, they still exist to be true because they are outside of what you have authored and what you have, you just happen to find them and discover them, they're not created by you. 
goes on to say that moral laws are a lot like gravity. Unlike the law of gravity, which tells us what does happen, the law of morality tells us what should happen. But it doesn't always even tell us what's helpful. For example, morality tells us, most of us, that it would be wrong to commit, uh, to, to kill anyone once they reach the age of 70. Is that a great idea? Is that, would that be helpful? I mean, it, it would definitely cost, but th- that's an extreme position. Um, there's less extreme positions articulated on euthanasia, but the foundation for arguing against them is the dignity and value of all human life. Um, there are examples where doing the right thing actually costs somebody, particularly in the moment. Moral laws are not accounted for by naturalism. If there is no God, there doesn't seem to be a foundation for what is actually right and wrong. And we'll get into that more in a minute. And if the power behind the world, this is his last one, he makes a fairly quick transition. If the power behind the world is actually good, then good being the opposite of evil, he must hate evil, and that means he has a reason to hate us because we, as he begins with, are in agreement on moral laws but do not always obey them. Whether that's lying, whether that's theft, whether that's laziness, etc. All right, I found this helpful study guide for Mere Christianity authored by David Grice. I don't know who he is, but I found it good. Um, it, good material here. All right, and some of this, I, when we were working through Romans, I already brought up, but he uses this, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. But that moral law or the natural law, it's universal. It's hardwired in the conscience. The moral law distinguishes us from animals, um, looking at the image being created in the image of God there in Genesis 1 and 2. That humanity universally, I would add, tries to suppress this knowledge from creation and regarding morality. That the moral law is broken by all, according to Romans 3.23, but we, like Adam and Eve, often try to shift the blame. This is his biblical support for the stuff coming from the first five chapters of Mere Christianity. Those are brief chapters, by the way, and you can actually, I think you can probably find a free PDF. You can find, it, find a free PDF. I almost printed it for you because it was from a .edu website, and I was like, that's probably fair game, but I didn't think you wanted 20 pages of homework, so I gave you four instead. Uh, but you can find a free PDF of Mere Christianity, but it's also a really, it's a pretty cheap book and a good one worth, the whole thing's worth reading, okay? All right. When he talks about moral law being universal, there is some pushback because people are like, eh, universal, I don't know. Like some cultures prioritize lying and don't have any problems with it. I mean, like Hitler didn't have any problem with eliminating the Jews. Other people in Germany didn't, others did. Um, So that was a societal thing. So we're gonna play a little game right now. Uh, Pastor Jacob, you and I are gonna play a game. I'm gonna come over here and see you for a minute. All right, so we're gonna play this game of you have to tell me why um, something is wrong, okay? You ready for this game? Sure. Okay. Is theft wrong? You're, you have to be a moral relativist in this case. Okay. So I have to tell you why theft is yeah, wrong? Yeah, why is theft wrong from your moral relativistic standpoint where, I mean, is theft actually wrong? What if it helps somebody else? Well, then you could be okay. Could be okay. All right. Thank you. Is theft wrong now? Yes, it is, because I've now interfered with your stuff. Okay, short game played. Most people are moral relativists until you do to unto them what they do not want done unto them. Okay, really, really quick example there. Well, you know, it might, it's not always wrong to do these things. Well, okay, theft isn't always, I'll just take your phone. Now it's wrong. Okay, most people are not moral relativists when it happens to themselves. At the level of sexuality, Oh, you don't think it's that wrong? What if that was your spouse? What if that was your kid? Oh, okay, now it got personal. Now it hurts. Now I disagree with you with that very, or not disagree with you. Now I disagree with my own statement about things being relative and cultural, okay? Um, And it might be Lewis, but when I was preaching through Romans chapter two, one pastor brought up that that is the best way to see that the conscience is still wired on the soul is when you take somebody's stuff or begin to take their relativism and turn it against them that they actually at that point show, no, that's wrong. You should not punch me in the face. That's a bad idea. Well, why not? You just told me everything's relative. Um, truth for me, truth for you. Okay. 
Um, even when claiming moral relativism, it's rare for us to just say, I think that's wrong. Most people actually say, that's wrong. Or, that's right. They don't often say, I think it, as if they are the source. Even most of the time, the vocabulary actually tells the story of what's actually going on in their world. When they say, that's wrong. Now, if they say, I think that's wrong, that's a little bit different. But most of the time, the vocabulary tells you that little slip that they actually have something beyond relativism. You can't hold on to, to, to relativism at its extremes. Okay. Tim Keller and the Reason for God. Uh, I really like Keller as well. Um, I think Keller's a little bit... Mere Christianity is better. Keller's Reason for God may be a little bit more accessible. Um, although Lewis's is easy too. Um, he says this and, and walks this through. He says, human rights are not assumed to be relative. Why should, we, um, why should we protect children? Well, because they're kids. They have a right to live. Right. When they're six, they have a right to live. Um, you shouldn't kill six-year-olds. Um, they have a right to live. Well, why? Well, it's a right. Nobody's defending that right. It's just assumed. It's an assumed right to live. There are other assumed rights. Human rela- rights are not assumed to be relative. And they use the term right, which means there are wrongs, which means that even at the basis of that, human rights points to the fact that that person doesn't actually believe everything is relative. If there are human rights, then there are wrongs, which means there are, everything is not relative. Um, although there are some ethics professors, including the famous Peter Singer, he argues that ethics should be balanced by measuring the happiness, maximizing best interest of society. He believes in all sorts of crazy things. Um, uh, in theory, uh, it's not only okay, but it's preferred to commit infanticide in the case of severely handicapped babies to do selective geriatricide, which would save a lot of money in his words on healthcare costs. Um, they both relate, according to him, to the greater happiness of society and improve lot for all. Um, and, but despite his famed ethicist position, he would not choose to practice his ethics with his own mother and her poor health. Um, he could not live out the implications of his belief. So, um, All right, human rights are different than what we observe in the animal world. The animal world is incredibly violent. Survival of the fittest rules, and that means violence abounds. Human rights are different. There's something within us that is different than the animal world in that, uh, and Keller brings that up. And he goes on to say, if there is no God, then what is the foundation for morality and those rights? What do you mean when you say good if you do not have a standard of good? What do you mean wrong if you have no absolute standard of what is wrong? And he goes on to say, are human rights only relative? Um, Because this is the reality in which it heads. If the premise that there is no God leads to a conclusion that you know can't be true, that napalming babies is okay, then why not consider changing the premise? Um, moral relativism does not work. Morality points to. It does not conclusively, beyond the shadow of doubt, point to the biblical God. It point or guarantee that there is a, the biblical God is true. Okay, it points to, but it doesn't get all the way there. Um. By the way, I, I didn't unpack this at all. I just left you note there. Our longings for justice function very similarly to the argument from natural law, the argument of morals, uh, morality, that God, he is also the foundation of justice and that justice must exist beyond the world. I don't think I gave you this quote. Um, this quote from a different source. Um, yeah. As long as it is possible that evil be defeated, that innocent suffering is not meaningless and final, it seems to me that we have a moral obligation to hope that that possibility is actual. To be sure, the Holocaust was an enormous, tragically, tragic, enormously tragic. But without God, if there is no God, the Holocaust is even more tragic. Indeed, a far greater evil than the evils of history would be the evils of history would not be defeated if there is no God. 
reaffirm that last part. Without God, the evils of history would be not be defeated and that would be a far greater evil and injustice. Okay, the argument from justice is similar to the argument from morality. God is the foundation of justice and justice exists beyond this life even. Lewis gives his argument from desires. I didn't give you this one. Uh, and that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger that because there is a such thing as food, a dolphin wants to swim, there is such thing as water, men feel sexual desire because there is a such thing as sex. And if I find in myself a, which, a desire which no experience in this life satisfies, it points to the existence of, a, of the substance beyond this life, which in the longing for eternity that has marked so many people throughout history um, points to Christ as that one that satisfies our eternal thirst. Uh, I want to read this quote on beauty. I didn't do much on this. A little bit, Sam may bridge into it next week, um, particularly with Schaefer and the material from Schaefer that he probably will use next week. Keller, on his argument from beauty, says, if we are the product of accidental natural forces, what we call beauty is nothing but neurological, hardwired response to particular data. You only find certain scenes beautiful because you had ancestors that knew you would find food there and they survived because of that neurological feature and now we have it too. In the same way, music feels significant, but that significance is an illusion. Love must be seen in this light. If we are the result of blind natural forces, then what we call love is simply a biochemical response inherited from ancestors who survived because this trait helped them to survive. Beauty and love, most people would suggest, is more than a biochemical response. There is, apart from beauty, there's no reason why the entire world is not made of squares that are white or the easiest color to paint or not even painted. Okay? Beauty, we have a longing for beauty that does not fit with a pure naturalism that we are the product of natural selection and that there's nothing behind it. Okay? So there's some that will use the argument from beauty um, there. <laughs>